0: Behold, the sword of power,
1: Excalibur. Welcome to the oh gosh oh golly oh wow podcast the podcast where we talk about the marvel comic series excalibur and nothing but excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks this week we are still in mr lobdell's version of wakanda covering excalibur number 60 braddock of the jungle in which brian is tarzan kurt and cerise continue getting to know each other and the less said about megan the better excalibur number 60 was originally published in january 1993 and the creative team is scott lobdell on writing scott collins on pencils john hallridge on inks mike thomas on colors michael higgins on letters and Terry Cavanaugh on editing.
0: Stay alert, boys! Once we cross the border, the Vagrania will be ours. Who's that? You are in violation of Wakandan law, my law. I offer you a choice. Face your day in court or face Black Panther's wrath. <laughs> Chosen
1: Welcome back for another week of a... Uh pretty bad story paired with a really great guest who I will introduce in a moment. But first, you're not new, not different team. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about gender and sexuality and other issues of representation in comics and pop culture for expensive academic books and journals and less expensive websites like ComicsXF and The Middle Spaces and Comic Book Herald and Shelf Dust and Women Write About Comics. I remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager and in that capacity, I am recommending that we spend the bulk of our time today debating the very 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 important issue of whether or not he should have a toenail on that back toe thingy that he has because he has one in this comic and I found myself staring at it and wondering about it and I did ask the internet and engage people in a pretty robust debate about it so if we can return to that at some point today I'd be very grateful to spend at least half an hour on that important topic but before we can launch into that we need to get through our intros so Mav remind us of your expertise
2: I think you're shortchanging this at half an hour. I mean, this is an hour <laughs> show. We can do fifty nine minutes on this easily because that will be so much better than. Well, that's not true because I, I did want to. Um, you want to talk know, about Tarzan? Tarzan and George of the Jungle, two of my favorite things that are, you know, not this <laughs> and 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 the long history of what Tarzan is and yeah and and you know George of the Jungle is and and. Tarzan the Disney thing and how Tarzan is not the story people think it is you know if we have to talk about this comic you know I'll try to fit it in but um (laughs) beyond that hi my name is Christopher Maverick but you can call me Mav I'm the host of this show and another show called Vox Popcast where I talk about comics and pop culture and the internet and stuff like that i teach at like three different universities but it's summer vacation so yes technically right now i'm unemployed which is kind of good and bad and nice and, and you know, <laughs> that, that's my life in a nutshell <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks andrew please refresh your credentials
0: hi i'm dr andrew Deman. i am a lecturer at saint jerome's university and project lead for the claremont run a big old social media study of chris claremont's x-men comics and i don't know why I'm coming from this angle here. I might have been in like a good mood this past week or maybe I vented (laughs) all my (laughs) animosity last week. But I actually think there's some small things in this comic that I kind of liked. Not the bizarrely affectionate colonialism or the deeply casual misogyny. They're still here and unbelievably rough. But since I've spent like most of our Lobdell episodes just absolutely dogpiling a poor young writer, I found a few little bits of writing here and there that I actually think
1: are worth talking about as, I don't know, not bad i'm happy to entertain your optimism andrew
2: i think he's lying because i don't think there's any writing in this book at all so like i'm really looking forward to
1: hearing it i'm gonna try all right our team is joined i've seen writing before sir (laughs) our team is joined this week by an absolutely amazing guest who we are utterly lucky and thrilled to have with us the pod is enthusiastic to welcome dr deborah elizabeth whaley welcome deborah
3: uh thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to be here and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: We're definitely looking forward to chatting with you, and I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Dr. Deborah Elizabeth Whaley is an artist, curator, writer, poet, and professor at the University of Iowa. Her research and teaching focuses on American literature, history and culture, Black cultural studies, the digital humanities, popular culture, and the visual arts. Her critically acclaimed book, Black Women in Sequence, Re-Inking Comics, Graphic Novels, and Anime, explores graphic novel production and comic book fandom, looking in particular at African, African African-American, and multi-ethnic women as deployed in television, film, and gaming, and print representations of comic book and graphic novel characters. I know all of us today are big fans of the book and I want to talk to you about it a little bit, but let's start with some of the fun personal stuff. We like to do comics origin stories at the beginning of the podcast and I'm always curious to hear about that and I'm definitely curious to hear about yours. So Deborah, when did you first discover comics and when did you first fall in love with comics?
3: My first entry into comics
1: came from the newspaper. I
3: think uh, like a lot of folks, I would read the, you know, what we call the funnies in the newspapers (laughs) that my parents um, discarded. But for me, I was, you know, I was interested in the narrative, but I was mostly interested in the art. And so when I first started um, looking at reading and being enthralled by comics, it was really to see if I could replicate the art in the comics. And so I started doing that with the uh, newspaper comics. And then, you know, eventually, again, like a a lot of young people moved to comic books, not on my own, just things that uh, my siblings, you know, were reading and passed down. And so then I would pick up theirs and, and read it. And again, also just enthralled by the art and drawing the characters within the
1: pages. What were some of your early favorites, like either in the world of comic strips or comic books?
3: That's a good question. So um, in comic strips, I would say like a lot of people, Peanuts, Doonesbury, I really liked the comic strip, Kathy, and I would draw her Ooh. a lot, and make my own uh, scenarios, jumpstart. So for comic books, mostly superhero comics, right? So some of the major players, you know, Batman, and you know, I know this is a We focus on Marvel here. (laughs) 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 uh, But Spider-Man 2 and some other great titles and I'm really excited to talk about the issue we're going to talk about today as well as other uh, things but I I just wanted to say insofar as how I came to comics I didn't see or read really any Black characters I didn't really see them uh, and the comics that I ended up picking up and insofar as comic strips are concerned I think the only Black Characters that I read in comics uh, came from the comic strip Jumpstart.
1: Well, maybe that's a good segue to talking about your book and sort of the genesis of that. So I mentioned it already, your book, Black Women in Sequence. So yeah, tell us a little bit about the origins of that book. Like what made you want to do that book in the way that you did it?
3: So there were several things that led me to write what started as an article, um, ended up becoming, I ended up writing a book. So one of those things was just the need to have a book in the world that not only talked about black characters and blackness but talked about gender and very specifically talked about black women characters and I began the project as an article as I just said and I was writing an article on the character Catwoman the Halle Berry film had uh, just come out, her rendition of Catwoman and like many, you know, my age, I'm in my early 50s, I loved watching Eartha Kitt as Catwoman Mm -hmm. runs a a that. Man that I would see in the 1970s, and so when that. Catwoman film came out, I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I should uh, think about the relationship between this new iteration and the Batman television show, as well as the graphic novel that I had ended up uh, getting into the the Catwoman um, graphic novel, especially done by Ed Brubaker. And so I just wanted to connect all the dots between those different forms of media. And as I began researching for the article, I found that there really wasn't a lot written on Black women characters in comics. And so as I did the research, I kept delving more and more into the archive, as well as building my own archive. And it led me to wonderful artists, wonderful titles that I had not heard of. And so eventually, you know, so it started as an article on Catwoman. Then I thought, well, maybe I'll also write an article on Jackie Orms, a big fan of her work. Yes. Um, Of course, many, um, you know, who will be listening to this podcast know Orms. She's cited as one of the most early Black female cartoonist who worked in 30s 40s and 50s and so I started writing an article on her and then I started meeting a lot of amazing black women artists that had similar interests to me that got into art by you know drawing comics and I began talking to them about their work especially black women artists who are in and affiliated with the Orms Society which is a critical mass of black women in comics and of course they've taken Jackie Orms's name to you know signify the history of uh, black women artists in the field comics i began talking to those women and uh, you know at that point thought well there's definitely a, a deficit uh, there's definitely room here to research more and write more and i just began to continue to do the research and it ended up becoming a, a book chapter chapter by chapter
1: what kind of excites you about the concept of sort of looking at Black women in sequence? Like, I hate doing the, like, explain the thesis of your book, like, in five minutes thing, but, you know, I mean, what about sort of the meeting of medium of comics and sort of representing identity in this form kind of excites you? Like, what made you specifically want to talk about representation in comics and anime and cartooning?
3: What I wanted to do with Black women in sequence is talk about more than just representation, where Black women show up and... Mm -hmm. uh, chronicling things like stereotypes and things like that. Although I do talk about that and I think representation is very important. So I'm not one of those pop culture scholars who are like, oh, let's get beyond representation. Um, I'm not there, but I am one of those pop culture scholars that also want to look at things like leadership the political economy the art of the comics and so what Black Women in Sequence tries to do, if I had to describe it in a really pithy way in a nutshell, <laughs> it chronicles the emergence of Black women characters over time in the 20th and 21st century it aims to think about the ways in which artists and writers use Black women characters to remark upon history. So rights, social relations, a lot of things going on in the world. And, you know, the the title is Black Women in Sequence. So I also wanted to think about Black women characters in the wide world of sequential art. So comics, comic strips, graphic novels. Uh, I talk about gaming and television and film. And so I wanted to do a wide multimedia type of Analysis that would consider the narrative and consider the visual, and to think about how those things work together, which I describe in the book as the. Op- cognitive aspect of comics, right? So you're reading a narrative and looking at the visual simultaneously, which uh, ends up becoming a different type of reading and viewing practice that I think is mostly attributed to the comic and graphic novel form.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love what you do in your book with sort of combining those discussions of representation with discussions of form because we've, yeah, we none of us here on the podcast are trying to go beyond representation either, but we have definitely talked about a certain tendency in some some critical work to do kind of like lists of problems research and i really enjoy that your work doesn't do that that it sort of engages with that work on that formal level as well which is so great and you know speaking of that we're not talking about storm in this comic book She sad, uh, well good for her actually not present in this particular oh. comic book but oh. but um i did want to talk to you about it a little bit it's an x-men podcast and i think we've all here done a little bit of critical work on storm we're all certainly big fans of hers and i love your writing about it her so much. So I'll just put the question to you, you know, what makes Storm an important or interesting character for you kind of in the history of American comics? What made you want to write about her for the book?
3: Storm is important because she stands out as uh, one of the most early black female characters in comics. And Star for me is interesting because she's not just a character that shows up in these titles. She has um, many roles that she plays. I like her origin story. You know, one of the things I write about in the book is that they're both erroneous, but also productive ways in which her story was told in terms of of ethnicity and heritage. Um, But I also like Storm because she is a leader. And so my discussion of Storm in the book wanted to do more than what I had read insofar as a lot of what I was reading about the character focused on stereotypes, uh, representation, didn't really see Storm as important other than the fact that she's one of the most early characters. Um, a lot of people consider Storm a sidekick or underdeveloped. And what I found looking across, again, a, a wide amount of media, most obviously her representation in the X-Men, but also looking at Eric Jerome Dickey's uh, narrative of Storm. I didn't write directly about the animated versions of Storm, but that's definitely something that I looked at and viewed Mm -hmm. and considered. I do talk about the filmic representation of Storm, and so what I try to argue, what I think is so important about the character, is if you look at the character across various forms of meaning, you can begin to think about and see the wide range of meanings uh, that the character brings to the comics world, again, insofar as leadership is concerned, gender, you know, the, the politics of uh, sexuality, of intertribal relations, you know, so I'm thinking about Eric Jerome Dickey's graphic novel, Storm, and how it, it takes up a sort of intercultural conflict amongst Africans, and so this is, you know, those are some of the reasons why I think Storm is so important. And um, so I guess the last thing I'll say about that, before the book was done, and I would talk to people about my research, and you know, that I was writing this book on black women in comics, and most everyone would say, well, like, what are you going to talk about? There's the character Storm. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, maybe they, uh, you know, they're aware of like Eartha Kitt playing Catwoman in the 1960s mm-hmm. Batman television show. But uh, a lot of folks would basically say like, well, what is there to write about? <laughs> in storm yeah. uh and so in some ways i'm like oh gosh you know maybe the book should just you know not even yeah. really look at storm because of it but once i delved deep into the the x-men franchise i, I really did see um, and again across other forms of, of media i really did uh, see the necessity to to take up this character in the book she's a great character i think i i love storm
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, though, Andrew, but I mean, one of the early things that I remember from Claremont Run was when you were doing that those dialogue and appearance analyses, like the data set, and was there not one that proves that Storm is the most prominent character in Claremont's X-Men?
0: Yeah, by a mile. She's the most visually represented. She has by far the most thought balloons, like by far, uh, and narrowly the most um, dialogue balloons.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I remember seeing that when you first published that, like sort of near the beginning of Claremont Run, and then being strangely surprised by that and not because Storm didn't feel prominent to me when I was reading those comics but I think only because of the ways that her prominent role has been walked back in some later iterations like she's still prominent but just realizing how prominent she was during that era and how that doesn't follow through in every era that definitely was an eye-opener for me
0: yeah, for sure. I, I think that's one of the things that I've really kind of appreciated in doing my own project is just the extent to which X Men comics is all oriented around Storm uh, in, in a way that a lot of people don't seem to be talking about too much.
3: And I also, if, if I may interject, of course. I see really a lot of folks writing on the character who write about the character have not read, and, and I have. A, I have not read all of X Men, but I did try to do a really, really deep dive, and I think a lot people who see the character as um, not as significant as myself uh, and others. were are looking at a really small portion of the appearance of the character in comics and what I tried to do is just read as many as I could representative over a large historical time. <laughs> so I really would get a full picture uh, of the character over time. And uh, you know, there's, there's lots to read in so far as, you know, where Storm shows up in, in comics. So that's not a- a a criticism of those, you know, there's only so much you can read, but I do think that, you know, some of the writing that doesn't really see the character as, you know, as significant as I do, perhaps was not reading the
1: fullness of the catalog. I think that there's a problem that some scholars fall into, and I will say like (laughs) white scholars, and because I notice the same thing sometimes when men are sort of talking about gender representation in terms of talking about female characters, that you pick the problematic stories to make a point and then sometimes ignore the fullness of the catalog because that's a more complex story. And that challenges you to have to talk about that complexity. And some people are more interested in doing that list of problems kind of thing. And I feel like it's almost like a guilt thing. And I mean, I'll just speak from the gender perspective of, you know, I encounter that with a lot you know, there's so many men doing wonderful research on comics. I podcast with two of them every single week. This is like a hashtag, not all men, <laughs> but, like, but, like, but at the same time, you know, I do encounter that like almost like people are speaking kind of from a guilt and they do just want to work through the problems, but then they miss the positivity and they miss the complexity. And, um, I see that with a lot of scholarship about race and comics as well. And again, another reason why I appreciate when people are doing such fabulous work on the subject.
2: And well, we're not going to do that today. Uh, I'm gonna try. Yeah, I'm just gonna try. Yeah, I actually think we will. I think um I think you make a really good point. And I'm not all men, yes. And not all white people, yes. I will say I'm gonna be a little less generous than Anna. I certainly have seen many black scholars do that as well, and many female scholars do it as well. And um yeah, yeah. LGBTQ scholars do it about uh, about queer readings and everything. I always point to just because it's a You know, it's a story that I wrote about um, and I wrote I I took the opposite approach is for me, the it's, it's the most obvious for me is to is the way people look at the killing joke, because the killing joke has just been the story we point to to show trauma and to show problematic readings and to show women in refrigerators. It's the one we use and no one talks about anything else about that story anymore. I tried to, I, I talked about the, you know, the love story between Batman and Joker, but also it's the only thing anybody ever talks about with Barbara Gordon. She's a character who's been around for 50, 60 years now, you know? So like there, there are, there's a wealth of stories that you can do. I think it's guilt, but I think it's also, The people who are writing these things, they, you know, you want to care. You want to point at the problematic thing because you want it to be better. And nuance is hard, right? Like it's really hard to say, oh, well, you know, there is some something to be said for this horribly racist story that we're about to talk about today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and there is there, I mean, there are there are uh, i'm trying to be fair to this story i mean i i dunk on Liddell because you know it's kind of fun but on the other <laughs> hand i um i also i teach tarzan on purpose in class and it's, i don't just teach that book in my intro to lit classes in order to have a weird problematic racist book there are a lot of things that you can try to see that he's trying to do with colonialism both good and bad and i think libdel who there's no way he read this but read tarzan but you know because but i think he's trying <laughs> to do what he thinks is progressive there and i think that i think that's worth acknowledging if you're going to be a scholar and to do analysis means that you have to do fair analysis not just like you said point at problems
3: and task i have heard from readers who have said that you know they've read all of (laughs) x-men and you know they share with me well you sort of misinterpreted this you got this wrong and if you knew about this issue that came after the one that you talked about you would know x or y so i mean you know even in my own uh, analysis could you know be uh, sharper had i had the opportunity or the time to uh read every single comic in which she appeared. So I, I did want to say that as well. I'm not sort of, you know, putting myself up on a pedestal in terms of my my work on uh Storm. So and
2: I also I actually, don't believe that. I appreciate most of those people.
3: that reader feedback.
2: Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I just like, I don't believe most of those people who are like I've read all like the only person I know of who's read all of X-Men probably yes, is Hello. Uh, um Have you read <laughs> all of them? You you read all of the Claremont run? Have you read all of X Men like up through now? I'm pretty Douglas, close. I think there's some okay.
0: stuff I missed in the Roy Thomas era.
2: Okay, because I was gonna say Doug Wolk, Douglas Wolk, who um, oh yeah who, yeah 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 who I've had you know got to interview. He's the only person I, could, I know of who read literally every Marvel comic ever. It's pretty amazing. It's an amazing accomplishment. But I think most of those people are just wanting to say, well, no, it's not this because I want to defend my story that I like. And right. That's, you don't and you shouldn't have to read everything you know if we're gonna go with the no, with the Stanley slash jim shooter logic of every comic is someone's first comic also every comic is someone's only comic or first or last like you the story does need to stand on its own it does need to you know if if, if this is the only issue that of excalibur that you've ever read then you're going to have a very problematic view of what excalibur is because of today and like that needs yeah. to matter
1: yeah absolutely and of course if we're doing like individual analyses of individual story arcs and stuff that analysis does stand on its own regardless of like whether somebody retzcons it 10 years later it just depends how we're approaching these things. Okay, I want to talk about this comic a little bit and I want to talk about Wakanda and Black Panther and I'm very eager to hear Deborah's thoughts about that. So let's get through our issue summary and then come back to some of the specifics in this comic. And don't worry, Mav, I have set up questions for you about Tarzan. We will get to that as well. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> I know we've got lots of lively listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never make you listen to a summary of this comic book unless we were obligated by an imaginary contract to do so. So we will. Excalibur number 60 <laughs> opens where Excalibur number 59 left off, with Icon and his cadre of transformed Wakandan citizens facing off against the so-called New Excalibur, consisting of Kitty Pride, Lockheed, Megan, Captain America, and Iron Man, currently James Rhodes. Meanwhile, Brian, trapped in a vibranium safety shelter from last issue, worries about his failing strength, but finally devises a clever solution to escape and join the fight. He eventually realizes the ground is soft and muddy, and he can just dig his way out? Ask questions about this at your peril. Meanwhile, back in London, so Cerise and Nightcrawler soar over the city in pursuit of the knight Errant introduced in the previous issue. They quickly find him and confront him, but he seems to be doing good things, like uncovering a hidden nuclear warhead. Later, Kurt declines to turn the knight over to the cops, and we see him return, stripped of his armor, to a retirement home. We will never see him again. Back in Wakanda, Icon <laughs> announces that his first act as leader is to eliminate all the foreigners in Wakanda. So he points a future gun at Kitty, who compares him to a Nazi. Not the greatest. When Icon threatens Megan, Brian swings onto the Seen in a Tarzan getup, calling himself Jungle Man. Eventually, Iron Man broadcasts the sonic signal that destroys Icon's weapons. Icon screams and collapses, distraught at his failure. As the surrounding heroes watch, he tells them his ability to transform people into wooden warriors only lasts an hour. This includes himself. As Icon transforms back into human form, T'Challa recognizes him as Dr. Akura, a brilliant Wakandan geneticist whose daughter died after toxic waste poisoning dumped by foreigners. As T'Challa carries the doctor away, the assembled heroes vow to renew their effort to rid the world of toxic waste. Okay, I'm curious to get to first impressions, and we will start, as we usually do, with our honored guest. So, Deborah, how was your experience of reading this comic? You did say you were eager to talk about it, so I'm, I'm eager to hear your first impressions. Um, what do you particularly want to talk about right off the top?
3: I'm eager to talk about it because, you know, earlier I was talking about the optic-cognitive aspect of comics, and I'm eager to talk about it because when I was reading it, I was interpreting the narrative, reading the narrative, also thinking about the visual, thinking about coloring and the lines and the way that the frames are done. I'm thinking about, and I was uh, making sense of the advertisements throughout the comic book. And so thinking about it as a material object in everything in it and why it adds for this or that in this specific comic, right? And then just looking at it and it's Totality, and insofar as the art is concerned, it's definitely a, a visualization. That you would see a lot, you know, in this historical moment of that era. But I think there's great things about the visual aspect of it, in terms of the way at least characters of African descent are drawn in contemporary times. It looks a, a lot better than it, you know, did in yesteryear in the, the '90s and before. And you know, b- before this podcast, we exchanged a few messages, and I, I was sort of, um, I don't say I was set up for, but I I was expecting like the worst. <laughs> The and then when i you know because you seem a little bit apologetic like oh there's these problems with it but you know we're, we're going to talk about this comic um so when i was reading it i was like you know just like it was said earlier obviously bad things in terms of kind of colonialist view but also an anti colonialist view right so there's lots of nuance Mm -hmm. and contradictions in it you know there are some sort of tribal retrograde types of visualizations and narrative moments Um, but also there are these great moments where uh, the comic is talking about Wakanda as this amazing technological advanced site right Um, as you mentioned in your overview the comic takes up environmental erosion. There's absolutely some troubling gender politics uh, in the comic, <laughs> yeah. but I think we can also think think about and through the ways in which the Black Panther represents Black masculinity in very important ways, right? So it's not sort of this uh, brute and brawn of a kind of like a Luke Cage <laughs> type of yesteryear representation where Black men and Black male superhero characters are really drawn and thought of in terms of their physical uh, physicality only, right? So with the Black Panther, you get the intellectual aspects of the character uh, and and most obviously like most superhero characters you also get you know the, the aspect of the character that is able to execute you know amazing missions because of their learned agility and powers etc but I think there's a lot going on in this comic and uh, yes yeah, so I'm just looking forward to even you know delving more deep into it but that's just my you know general
1: take on it Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, we can point out that Rody is the one who comes up with the solution to this whole problem, who is the current Iron Man in this comic, which sort of fits mm-hmm. what you're saying about a potential moment of complexity, because we don't actually see Rody doing a lot of physical fighting here. He comes up with a technological solution to this problem, which, you know, seems like a deliberate storytelling choice. I will give it that. Um, let's do some other first impressions. I'll come to Mav first, I think, because I am interested in Andrews, but I'll, I'll give you a chance to sound off first, Mav. How are, how are you feeling about this issue in particular?
2: It's probably worse than last issue, but like I I think reading them back to back, I'm already in the zone of it, so it feels better. Yeah, 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 yeah. you know, there are some things like I, you said, you Rhodey, who is the current Iron Man and is a black person is the one who solves the problem i don't think that when Libdell wrote the book he knew roadie was actually <laughs> yeah. iron man i mean there's no nothing comes of it there's a, a acknowledgement last issue that it's not him but the storyline doesn't fit into where the iron man storyline of roadie is i know because i went and read it which meant that Libdell didn't go and ask anybody which has happened before. Like he was not big on editorial control or continuity at this point. There's no reason for it to be there. I do. However, and this is going to be my positive reading, given everything that I said earlier, I don't think he's trying to be negative. He's not trying to do something racist. In fact, I think Deborah's right. He's sort of trying to critique colonialism and racism in his own way as though no, but he's got this flaw where he's like, well, I've decided to be woke now and no one's ever made this decision before. (laughs) So I'm going to, like, that's, it's like he's the guy who, you ever notice how, (laughs) like when Trump said you know no one's ever heard of juneteenth before no one's ever heard of of no one's ever and and it's that kind of (laughs) thing where it's like i learned this thing yesterday so like i learned this thing yesterday so i don't think anybody else knows it and he's doing (laughs) that kind of positive work like or or, okay here's one when trump is something a good that trump actually did he pardoned jack johnson it's a good thing but he really thought that he discovered racism that day because he discovered it that day. And I think that's kind of where Love is here. Like he's like, Hey, you know, it's kind of bad colonialism hot take okay <laughs> <laughs> like and that's that, that's my take on it because there's other because i'm I'm trying to hold off on the negative stuff because like you know i have a lot of negative stuff to say about race and at this point i've decided that labdell just hates megan he just absolutely hates oh her. yeah yeah
1: yeah <laughs> so, it's rough so, for <laughs> megan
2: yeah like she is pointless here and oh god so i'm i'm being positive right now because i'm i don't think i'm gonna get back
1: why is she taken hostage she's a super strong shapeshifter i don't even understand why i'm supposed to think she's in danger
2: she can fucking fly brian her by by swinging and catching her in a vine she can fly and by the way she flies so well that she can't fall on accident I know because it happened with Kurt, like literally, you know, in issue three. <laughs> you know, where Kurt's like, I'll catch her. No, you can't because she can fly. <laughs> it's a thing she does. So, <laughs> that's All right. I was trying to be positive, but you brought it yeah. up.
1: So. I know. And I'm sorry. <laughs> Andrew, what have you got for us for first impressions?
0: Okay, I'm going to take my positive pitch here. Um, I don't like the plot. I don't like the characters. Those are two very important elements (laughs) of writing. (laughs) I do like the dialogue in a number of places. I I think, coming back to what Deborah was saying, I think the fact that he's surfacing ideas, and, and these are some quotes here, expansionism, isolationism, like those are pretty advanced for a guest story about Black Panther. Those are things you would find in more of like oh, a Black Panther run. Um, so I like that they're there. I wish he did something with them, but I like that they're there. I like that Di Thomas says that he'll have Kurt's blue-furred hide hanging from his office window, <laughs> oh, because so that dying. showcases... It showcases who Di Thomas is a bigot, someone who is holding on to a lot of rage, but also someone who does have the public interest at heart, which I kind of like. And I I also like the um, um, final line uh, where Kitty says something to the effect wasn't that the entire reason you were here today? And T'Challa says to find an alternative. Yes, the very reason each and every one of us is here every day of our lives. That's a good line for a long suffering leader, uh, showing sort of hard won wisdom in my eyes, which again is reflecting character at the same time that you're creating some semi-dynamic prose. So I was impressed with the dialogue. Everything else I blocked out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, why don't I come back to Deborah to talk a little bit more generally about Black Panther. We did some Black Panther history in the last episode, which I know you wouldn't have heard, but um, we talked about that a little bit. But I would love to hear your thoughts about it as well, given all of your (laughs) areas of expertise. I mean, what makes Black Panther and the world of Wakanda important you know why did it become you know this zeitgeist moment when the movie came out you know why are we still talking about why is it important to talk about it
3: we continue to talk about it and the character is important in the world in which the black panther comes from is important for exactly the reasons i laid out before right so wakanda is this amazing technological advanced fight the black panther you have a character who is a Black male, African, and, again, one who uses intellect to execute the, the narrative and the various adventures and battles that the Black Panther is involved in. And so it really stands out in terms of the character in the world in which Black Panther comes from as a unique representation. I mean, Well, unique, but also I, many have made the argument, and I would agree as well, In some iterations, you did see sort of more of the same, right? Insofar as representation of people of African descent in comics, but the character has certainly transformed, in my eyes, for the better over time. And insofar as, so, you know, it's just sort of thinking about the the print versions, but insofar as the the film is concerned, which you sort of reference it created even more excitement about the character, and even those who weren't knowledgeable about the Black Panther, other than the fact that the Black Panther existed, right? So folks who hadn't necessarily read the comics, the film really opened up character in this world of of Wakanda to a new audience, and you know I've argued elsewhere, um, and uh, you know things that I'll have coming out soon that a lot of times people will begin with the comics, right? And um, point out the differences between the comics and then the films or other iterations. But for those who weren't knowledgeable about the Black Panther, the film <laughs> led people back to the comics, right? And created this interest in the comics. And I think when people like ta Coates, you know, did his run with the Black Panther as well, that opened up a whole new audience just because of his is position in the limelight right so people um began to um, get interested in the character because of you know that run as well so it's an important character and you know I know uh uh, people really looking forward to the uh the second film and yeah I mean it also makes me think about when Chadwick Boseman um was accepting uh award himself along uh, with the cast for the Black Panther and he talks about this very issue right so when the the film first came out people were saying oh do you really think this film was going to make a difference, it's not going to make a difference you know, it's just a film and one of the things that he did, getting it back, getting back to our discussion about representation is to talk about what it meant for that ensemble of actors You know, to be on set every day working together, the weight that was on them to execute this film what it meant to have Ryan Coogler on board to tell this story, but one of the last things he said is, you know, was the film Black Panther important? I know that you can't say Black Panther without saying Black Panther 2 coming out soon, right? And so, yeah, I just wanted to end with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, anytime I think about that film, I just I do think about just what a zeitgeist moment it was and how it filtered into so many different aspects of culture. Like, this is dumb, but I always remember, like at the NBA All Star game that year, Victor Oladipo did a Black Panther dunk with the mask on, and he like failed at the dunk because he couldn't see through the mask, which was bad. (laughs) And then like, you know, Chadwick Boseman was there, you know, to like participate in it and stuff. And you just think about it, it was sort of every aspect of culture, you know, when it came out. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was the most exciting. It. I've been about a superhero movie for, for a while We already talked about it a bit last week But like maybe we'll veer into the discussion of sort of jungle genre to- tropes And we could talk about how Black Panther relates to that And get you talking about some of the Tarzan stuff, Mav So I'll let you take it away You know, how is this comic book interacting with the Tarzan mythos, let's call it. And I mean, we can talk more generally, too, about how that relates yeah. to the world of Black Panther, which, you know, we talked a little bit sure. in the last episode, that being yeah. an attempted subversion of some of those things. So what does it mean to have kind of this figure of white Tarzan come back into the space of Wakanda?
2: Some of this, I think, is sort of unintentional on lubdell's part, which also kind of makes it almost better, even. I want to qualify this with the fact that um, I said I teach, I, I teach. Tarzan. I teach the book Tarzan. This is rare. I've read Tarzan a dozen times, maybe a couple dozen times because I teach it. Most people have never read Tarzan. You've probably seen the movie Tarzan, the Disney movie. You've you've maybe seen like, you know, the movies, the black and white movies that are old. If you've never actually read the book Tarzan, it is very much about colonialism and race. Obviously, it's going to be a point to it, but it is way more about race than you think it is. The story of Tarzan is this white baby gets dropped in the jungle and because he's white, he naturally learns to become king because he's white. That's it. That's what the story is about. He is naturally, evolutionarily more gifted than everybody else. It's just about eugenics. That's the story of Tarzan. And the thing that you think of when you see Tarzan, the me, Tarzan, you, Jane, that's not in the book. Tarzan is very, very highly intelligent in the book, speaks perfect French and English because he taught himself by finding (laughs) random books. Like he is unbelievably smart. They added that in the movie and it just sort of became part of our cultural zeitgeist of what Tarzan is, the whole dumbness of him he's murderous it, it's a very different story now why this matters it matters because much of the idea of Tarzan that we have the guy in the loincloth that's all from movies and in, in the books he's naked he's just naked all the time in the movies we you know because we didn't want to have you know him swinging around with his junk hanging out they put a loincloth on him they gave him the me Tarzan you, Jane thing they changed a lot of stuff and that's our idea of Tarzan and that's what Brian is trying to do in this this book he is becoming this jungle character the jungle character that is also what we think of in you said comics like there's a jungle there's a jungle boy and a jungle girl trope that becomes your Kazar, your sheena your Shana um, rima the jungle girl there's a there's a lot of this that happens that all comes out of tar- tar- tarzan but in those original books again rima tarzan she which is another one they're all very very smart it changes right so Brian is appropriating this cultural ideal that was never part of the book. And I also think, and I keep, I've read this through several times to figure this out. I think that Brian was supposed to be more covered in mud for the entire rest of the book. Um, oh, I think Brian's God. supposed to look black. And I think the colors just refuse to do it. I think because the story, he's blonde and white. He Uh digs his way through the mud. When he first Mm -hmm. comes out of the mud, he's completely covered in mud. And and he calls himself Captain Wakanda. Captain Wakanda. The next time you see him, he's not covered in mud anymore, but his Mm -hmm. hair's still black. I think he's supposed to look like a black guy. And and I think Mike Thomas just had the good sense to look at this and go, nope, not going to do it. And decided to make him white like I think that's what happened (laughs) because the story reads like Brian thinks he's disguised a lot better than he is as opposed to just this guy who's dirty he also has enough mud to at least turn his hair black which is not how mud works like I've seen (laughs) I've seen muddy blonde people before like you get gross but not like that? So, I think that's what's going on here, but since that is changed by making him white and doing this Tarzan thing, this this classic movie Tarzan thing, it sort of ends up recalling the colonial ideal of what Tarzan is trying to do. Tarzan, as a book, is trying to make the argument that if we allow the white man to come in and take over, we will gift colonialism on the natives. We will gift colonialism on the apes. They will be better for it because, because they need his, his guidance. That's what the book's actually about. Everything is better because Tarzan's around. And I think that's what Labdell is trying to do here with Brian, if only subconsciously. Because again, remember, if you read, and this is going to come up more and more as Labdell writes more and more of these books. Labdell likes Brian. He sees Brian as the hero. So he is presenting a world wherein Brian, who had to be left behind because he's too recognizable, digs his way through to save Megan, the love of his life, who apparently forgot she could fly. Or that she had any offensive powers because, by the way, when Megan shows up, she's only a victim here. She does nothing. She never throws a punch in the entire book. She shapeshifted and came to help, and by helping, she gets in danger twice. She never does anything in this entire fight. None of the female characters do. Kitty throws one punch. I know. I went through and counted. <laughs> so, so like, it is very much a, you know, we need to make Brian the hero so that he can go through and give his colonial message, the message that I said at the beginning when I said the good things. He does want things to be better. He, as he said in the last one, he's trying to bring technology to Wakanda, the most technologically nation on the planet, according to the book, but whatever. He is trying to do that. And I think this is Libdell saying racism's wrong. Bigotry is wrong. So we're going to, fix it but it's a very limited worldview of fixing it which is actually kind of appropriate for brian
1: yeah i mean i don't think it's out of character for brian No, not at mean- all.
2: It's, <laughs> yeah. it's very in character but uh, yeah. but that's what's going on and and i mm-hmm. think that linking that to the tarzan to the actual tarzan mythos again that book that nobody reads unless you know you have to take my class um i i think linking it to the actual tarzan mythos sort of makes that even more pronounced, even if Lobdell was not aware of what the actual book says. Because again, Tarzan doesn't talk like this. Tarzan is not dumb in the books at all. He's very, very almost hyper-intelligent. So I think like being aware of that and being aware of what the tropes are, because Libdell sees Brian as hyper-intelligent, right? This is Brian trying to dumb himself down so he looks like a native, I guess? (laughs) like it's so weird but you know whatever and jungle man and captain wakanda captain the captain wakanda part really bothers me because i get that it's a throwaway joke but like he says out of respect i will now be captain wakanda dude you are a foreigner i'm gonna be captain japan because i say so that's not how that works (laughs) you know it's weird it's weird it's very weird
1: yeah, I'm definitely thinking a lot more about your assertion that he was meant to be black in it and it is making a lot more sense in terms of cuz why would this random white guy just be here yeah. and that wouldn't make any sense. It doesn't
2: the story doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, I mean, I think that's what's supposed to happen. I think he's supposed to be covered in mud and therefore <sighs> look brown, which is Ugh. and and I'm and I'm pretty sure Thomas just went, no, not going to do it. No. And I I think it was just just the colorist just refused to do it. Because otherwise, like I kept looking at am like, well, what that scene where he digs himself out of the mud is so intentional that I feel like that must have been what was supposed what they were going for. Because he's blonde on the cover and he's not in the book.
1: Well, can I come to you, Deborah, for that scene? So the scene where Brian swings in and scoops up Megan, who is in the form of a Black person, which is something that she has actually done before in the comics. And we did talk about... So when we talked about it previously, there was sort of an issue in which she was trying out different identities because she was in the proximity of different ethno-racial groups. And it was trying to do a thing, you know, talking about the fluidity of identity and different experiences of identity. It wasn't perfect, but one of the questions we asked at that time was, is there any good way to do that with a shapeshifter that, you know, isn't problematic? And I liked our conversation about it because we did sort of talk about we don't know. Like, that could always be problematic when you're talking about a shapeshifter who primarily presents as white. But in this particular case, it made me a lot more uncomfortable, but I'll come to you again, like, for a Deborah, What were your kind of thoughts or, or reactions to this scene?
3: The last point you made... Uh... insofar as like are there ways in which we can see this as useful in terms of the narrative when the character at the majority of the time the character presents as white and then begins like shape shifting into other uh, ethnicities, uh, racial groups, which I've, you know, I've written about. How might one do that in a way that is uh, useful, progressive, transgressive, whatever term you want to use. And so right now I'm writing on the title, Ms. Marvel, (laughs) you know, um, the uh, Willow G. Wilson iteration. And that iteration, the character is a shapeshifter. And I think that serves as an example of um, how you can use that in uh, the idea of the shapeshifter, the presence of the shapeshifter in really provocative and useful ways. But I think what you're pointing to is, you know, there's the the racial trouble, and then there's the gender trouble of that, you know, of that moment and that scene. And so... I think it's a good example of what we've been talking about in this podcast, right? So for every moment wherein you see really you know, useful narrative uh, representations of leadership, and colonialism, and intercultural conflict, as well as intercultural conflict. You also have these moments where there's a, a turn to the sort of primitive aspects of certain characters and lesser advanced ways of thinking about gender and race and just the missteps of sometimes or the missteps of some authors, you know, writers and and artists when they come in with good intentions to sort of have us think about racial ethnic issues, um, but in its execution is still laden with problematic aspects. And, you know, as a whole, that's what makes popular culture so interesting. Uh, and meaningful to to talk about, right? So the art that we create is similar to who we are as people, fallible, yeah, never perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a kind way of putting it. I mean, I it's it's hard, right? Because I do see a thing that he's doing here, where you know the white character is losing his power, you know, whereas it's you know the black characters who solve the problem and have like the moment of pathos at the end. So if I'm being super generous, I could be like, I feel like he's doing a script flip thing here. But then when you factor in those Tarzan tropes that Matt was talking about, and I think the danger of the fact that so few people go back and read the original Tarzan is that they view it as evacuated of some of those racial tropes, when in fact, it definitely, definitely, definitely is not. And emphasizing that those things are still there, even when they're not directly discussed in some adaptations, I think, as Matt was saying, is really important. But just the thing that really got me about this Brian and Megan scene was the way that they were sort of role-playing in a racist colonial fantasy in a romantic way. Because it's deeply romantic, right? He scoops her up and she smiles at him. And, oh, I just really hated this moment. I, it's one, maybe my least favorite moment of the entire run of Excalibur up to this point. It just made <laughs> yeah. me so deeply uncomfortable. And the other thing that I just wanted to flag was that when Megan shifts into this form, she loses her shorts. Like she's more sexualized in this form. No, I think she's not not wearing pants. I think she just took
2: them off for the costume. It makes Lobdell hates Megan. Okay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she he does not like her. Again, she's only here to be a victim. You wouldn't know from this issue if you didn't read last issue. You don't know that she's a white lady. And again, sure, there's a question is is. Of that could be interesting. Is she really white? Because the first time we see her, she's technically brown and furry. So, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but like, it could be interesting. It's not interesting the way it's done. Um, she took off her pants in order, I think she took off her pants in order to Who look wear more pants? costumey and not look like, oh, well, I can't be Brian's assistant. I have to yeah, look like yeah. somebody else, this yeah. native woman. That's what she calls her, a native. Literally everything about it is just weird and creepy. But I also understand how it's trying to be progressive, right? Like uh, there's a question of, you know, this is, it comes across as very, very blackfacey in a way that I don't think is intended to be blackfacey. There's a comic around this time where the Punisher becomes black for a while that was trying to be progressive. There's a comic book from much earlier where Lois Lane becomes black for yeah. a while. Yeah, yes. and these- yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. what I was
3: thinking about. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah.
2: And those are I mean, I understand why those are problematic when I read them in twenty twenty two, but when I am curious black was written, they were trying to do something super progressive, and it probably was for the time, because it's not blackface in the it, it she's certainly not becoming black in that story to make fun of black people in a minstrel kind of way. We just read it that way now. I think he's seriously trying to make Megan post-racial here in a way that I think could be interesting in the hands of a better writer i'll, I'll give you one that i think is better because we i was just been thinking about when you you um, anna said is there a way to do this non-problematically and i was thinking back to our earlier conversation you know from months and months ago i never really considered it till just now martian manhunter the martian manhunter in comics today after the justice league uh, cartoon but also the supergirl television series is almost always presented in as human guys. As a black man, he chooses to be a black man, even though, you know, his actual skin color is green and he's very much not humanoid, right? Like he's a different looking creature. But he cosplays <laughs> as a black man and in his um, in his normal human guise because that's the skin that he is most comfortable in. But it's not his real skin. It does not come across, at least when written correctly, it does not come across as blackface the same way that, you know, this does <laughs> in this comic, I guess, is the best is the best example. It, it it feels more respectful. Same power set. So I think it can be done.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that I came back to about this being more problematic than when we talked about Excalibur's New York adventure where where she also does the racial shifting is that we had her being racist in the previous issue like we had her being like are the Wakandans yeah. gonna like eat well, me are in eat a pot me, yeah. yeah so when I think about that she's clearly a huge racist as he's writing her and like clearly not accepting of other cultures and blah 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 so for her to adopt this guy's given that's how he's writing her. Because if it was how we're used to experiencing Megan, you know, as a more fluid and like productively naive character, like naive in terms of not mm-hmm. having preconceptions, not the negative version of naive. Right. I she's could kind of stupid
2: here. She's not Yeah, yeah. She's not, I could buy it because I don't more. Think she's racist like intentionally. She that, that's not even a dumb joke. She's legit afraid that she might be yeah. eaten because I don't know, yeah. she's never met a black person before which I, she clearly has yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah uh, there's kind of an ugly thing with megan and brian
0: too here that i thought lubdell went to too much of an effort to flag like when she's thinking about her plan and why she took on this form she specifically has to mention that it was brian's idea which is to me kind of stupid because you would think the person who would have good ideas about how to effectively shapeshift would be the shapeshifter but lubdell mm-hmm. make sure you know that it was brian's plan oh
1: god God, so much. <laughs> so much. There's so many other things that I think we can talk about. Um, I don't know whether I'll call this segment Final Thoughts, but I want to go around and make sure that we have a chance to talk about some other things that we didn't get a chance. Andrew and Mav, uh, I'll give you a chance to do some final thoughts. If you want to talk about the Curtin Cerise story, we certainly can. Um, Andrew, coming to you first.
0: Okay, well, I think you're going to be disappointed because the, the angle I want to talk about is the Knight Errant. I Perfect. don't Go for hate it. the idea of a superhero coming into, or supervillain, whatever he is, coming into supervillainy or superpowers or technological advent that makes him a supervillain really late in life. I think that's a really cool way to create contrast with the sort of youth (laughs) movements of comics. And I I think there's actually a lot of potential in terms of what that character could do, especially in terms of how a generational gap could be particularly dangerous when it comes to empowering someone to that degree. So yeah, I I thought the Knight Errant had a lot of potential. I hated his design and I hated his power set and weird robo horse. Um, But the concept (laughs) of just like a, a senior citizen superhero having all this power and again, using it in it kind of generation Gappy way I think that's cool I would kind of like to see that explored in a, a better design
1: yeah that's fair Mav did you have a final thought
2: uh yeah it was the same as Andrews I'm actually able to... <laughs> <laughs> uh, i uh, or or I mean almost exactly the same in that. I kind of love the Knight Errant. Um, So you said (laughs) (laughs) um, it's for me. It's the best part of the story. Now it doesn't work. It's shortchanged. I also like him because it makes no sense. There's a guy in a senior citizen home, but you know he decides he wants to become a supervillain and happens to have Stark level technology at his disposal. That, that he, hides he hides in the bushes. In the bushes. It's so <laughs> awesome. Like, it's ridiculous. I actually like his costume better than Andrew does. I I, I think he's fun. But um, he reminds me of, I'm going to refer you to, Amazing Spider-Man number two sixty-five. See again, this was my final thought as well, so I was ready for this. Um, wow! Amazing Spider-Man number two sixty-five: the first appearance of Silver Sable, which you know, listeners of our pod will know that I am, you know, I am a, a fan of Silver Silver Sable. But it's also the first appearance of a character named the Black Fox, who is an old man criminal that, like Silver Sable, <laughs> is just sort of after. He's just an old guy. He's a rival. Of the Black Cats, because again, the Black Cat is a um, is a sometimes supervillain, sometimes Spider-Man sidekick girlfriend at, at this point in comics. And very, very similarly, the the interesting thing about it is that he's, you know, he's going off on this life of petty crime, but he's like 75, 80 years old. And I love that character and nothing comes of him like uh, m- much like, much like this character in the night errant, like he's just basically forgotten about and nothing ever, no one ever does anything with him again, because you know, how, how much can you really do with the, with him unless you want to acknowledge that old people, you know, are useful when superhero comics aren't great at that. So um, I so much would have rather spent more time investigating this world than what we got so like that's why i was like uh, when when andrew started talking i'm like oh my god he's he's doing the same thing as me um yeah i love the knight errant i i like his costume i love that he's got like you know a derivation on the atomic steed that like the black knight used and hawkeye uses um that i (laughs) i love everything about this and the toenail thing you can talk about too but i but i I was i was like just all all set to just kind of go in all in on the knight (laughs) errant
1: yeah no i don't have much i mean i i would like to like this curtain cerise plot i mean they're going on a fun little buddy adventure with kurt and a tuxedo yeah. i like that in theory but <laughs> it's just like it's i don't want to talk about it anymore because we've talked about lobbel's problems writing women so much and we talked about it again on this podcast but it's just like cerise is just there to like ferry kurt around he just tells her to do stuff and it's like i don't know she really I don't... do
2: stuff. she's just there she's barely I know. She's...
1: <laughs> she's just there so that kurt can fly on her little like light beam
2: there is misogyny there there's i mean he he wants to the hero the scott labdell hero is you know a tough man who can do everything that's why he likes brian i mean you pointed out that like roadie had the idea to but not really that was kitty's one contribution kitty 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 actually has the idea that she shoots herself in the head then phases through so that iron man can analyze the power which is something that she just assumes he can do i mean it, it works out but like none of it really makes sense which again let's instead talk about the knight errant in times immoral i mean immortal i mean uh... <laughs> i love him so much <laughs>
1: Oh well, I will just point out on the subject of of Kurt's feet that it is a topic that inspired many different opinions. When I tweeted about it, including people. Well, because his feet are different a lot of times. Like sometimes it's a toe, sometimes it's just sort of like a jab on the back of his was, foot. And most yeah, I think people it as were a heel. yeah, most people were anti nail on the back of the foot, but. Several people were like he shouldn't have nails at all and one person was like he shouldn't have nails or fingernails and I don't know how they got to there from there but I was like X-Men fans are wild I mean they <laughs> they have opinions opinions yeah. and i love it i'm here for it
2: <laughs> i disagree that he shouldn't have fingernails he absolutely he, he's got hair he should have fingernails I
1: well find. it actually does that actually is interesting because it's like well if you perceive him as sort of like you like you know how everybody freaked out about that thing of like when sonic the hedgehog had teeth like in that right. early footage from the sonic movie mm-hmm. i feel like it's maybe a little bit of that like if you perceive kurt as sort of an inhuman cartoony type character, him having recognizable sort of human elements maybe freaks you out. I don't know if that's what's going on. I don't know. Mm
2: -hmm. This belongs more on my other show where we've already talked about it, but since Mm -hmm. you just brought it up, if you've not seen the Chippendales Rescue Rangers cartoon, Please go see it. And I can't say why, other than it had something to do with what Anna just said. And I just, I'm leaving it alone with that. Um, (laughs) All is redeemed. My, My plug for today, you owe it to yourself to go watch the Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers cartoon. Even if you're not a fan of the series, just go watch it. Trust me.
1: Fair enough. I've heard good things. I'll come back to you, Deborah. Were there other things in this comic that you want to make sure that we talk about before we kind of move to our, our little final thought segment? We haven't even talked about the Nightcrawler story, but there's not a lot to it. So I don't even know what I want to say about it. But is there anything else from this comic, Deborah, that you want to particularly make sure that we have a chance to talk about? Anything else that you want to spotlight?
3: And maybe as a summary, I'll just reiterate process of reading comics is sort of what i'm thinking about when i'm writing about this form and i'm analyzing this form, right so i'm thinking about the reader and how they're processing the narrative the visual thinking about the comic book as a whole things that i've already um mentioned and i think that's the great thing about the form is that there is so much to talk about and the contradictions within the narrative that we're all pointing out allows us to talk about the problems in racial, ethnic, gender representation and and sexuality, as well as the progressive aspects too, and the times where those things sort of intertwine. And so For every poor narrative execution, there's so much to talk about in terms of something that you don't want to replicate. So, you know, I I wouldn't want a world where all comics or all books or all anything has these sort of perfect cleanse representations and narratives that gets every single thing right. I wouldn't want that to happen, right? Because we learn so much from problematic aspects too, um, especially learning ways and thinking about ways to do better, but also just getting back to, you know, the idea of the contradictions are always going to be present. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because we can critique those aspects.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, you know, there is this thing that you can come back to and, and, you know, a number of, you know, my favorite books about representation in comics sort of highlight this, that superhero comics are narratives about power, right? And for good and bad, it's like a visualization of power and they can be very useful for unpacking problematic tropes. But of course, as we've been talking about, even just because of the complexity of the comics form, you know, the fact that it's multimodal, the fact that it's highly subjective, it can be a useful place for unpacking those contradictions too. And, you know, it's not that this comic is the best, example of that but I mean we did go into this conversation being like we hate this comic it's the most racist thing ever and we've actually found some points of nuance to talk about so mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> that's not so bad um, oh, Andrew so Mavo. no, no, it, no it, the comic so is really <laughs> bad. God, don't don't misunderstand. The comic is really bad. All right, I'm just going to briefly spotlight a little cute letter from the Swordstrokes letters page. So this letter is from Mika Shimoto. Dear Swordstrokes, Excalibur 55 was great, full of suspense, action, and more suspense, just as the cover says. Oh, and she put cover in quotation marks because this all dig on that unfinished cover there. Okay, now that I've calmed down, I can say this: I love to read Excalibur Albert! The character that got me into the book was Nightcrawler. I first saw him in the X-Men and fell in love with the character. Kurt, next to Wolverine, is my favorite Marvel character. I'm 13 years old, and I have but one friend who reads comics, and she's the one who got me into it, but she can't answer all of my questions. So, number one question, who is Amanda Sefton? And her number three question is, isn't Saturnine under the orders of Roma? And there's a mysterious number two question, that is missing that the editor must have cut out and it's going to torture me anyway so until kurt becomes a kill freak with a psychotic sidekick named bagpipe bowser make mine marvel love to spotlight a kurt letter (laughs) by (laughs) by the kids out there from 1993 i was not born to live a man's life but to be the stuff of future memory the fellowship was a brief beginning a fair time that cannot be forgotten and because it will not be forgotten that fair time may come again All right. I think we will wrap things up there. Deborah. I cannot thank you enough for helping us survive and have a productive conversation about this comic book. Truly, we are so eternally grateful. Before we go, we have to remind our lovely listeners of your awesome exploits. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what work of yours should they be rushing to check out?
3: again, thanks so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Uh, And I appreciate you mentioning my book, Black Women in Sequence. I'm hoping that it will go into a second edition. And I'm Still writing on the topic and hoping to add some chapters to that second uh, edition. Yeah, I am. uh, I just finished an an article on uh, the representation of Black women characters in DC, looking particularly at television and the influx of Mm -hmm. televisual representations that we've seen over the past. Six years. So I'm excited for that to come out, and that will be published in a book on Black television, edited by Beretta Smith, the great Beretta Smith Shabade. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I am writing on Ms. Marvel, wrapping up an article on uh, that character and thinking about Afrofuturism as well as Muslim futurisms and adolescent characters and all the brilliant things that I think the title Ms. Marvel is doing. So that something to look out for. And
1: uh, yeah. Awesome. I am very excited to read all of those things. And thank you so, so much again for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 61, Truth and Consequence, in which Alan Davis is back and kicking off the start of his last (laughs) story arc on Excalibur. I can't believe it. Well, I mean, there's kind of two story arcs, but it's his last last run on Excalibur anyway. And we've got some great combos in store before Davis leaves us behind. In the meantime, if you'd like to what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages on whatever issue we're reading this week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another heroic conversation. Thank you, Deborah, for lending us your sword. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out much, everybody.